0: I'm John Hill, and from WAMU and PRX, this is Through the Cracks, a podcast about the gaps in our society and the people who fall through
1: them. R-E-L-I-S-H-A. R-E-L-I-S-H-A. This is my dedication and my tribute to help deal with the situation.
2: I think everyone realized they effed up. Yeah. Everyone and no one wanted to take responsibility for this.
0: This season on Through the Cracks, we're investigating the disappearance of Relisha Rudd. Relisha disappeared when she was eight years old and her family was living in a homeless shelter in Southeast DC. It took 18 days for anyone to realize she was missing. We've looked at Relisha's family, how they were evicted from
1: their home. My sister, her kids, and her baby father were staying with me in a one-bedroom. It was small, but I didn't want them in a shelter.
3: It was, it was good when we first got in the shelter. You know, everybody was nice. Um, I ain't want to be there. No, I ain't want my kids are there.
4: Well, the horror stories for me was the fact that we had to get patted down when we come in the building. And it was almost like jail.
0: We've looked into Khalil Tatum who knew him, how he came to work at DC General, and how Relisha ended up in his care.
3: And I said, No, I don't know no Dr. Tatum. I know Mr. Tatum. And he looked at me. with a a stupid look on his face, like, oh,
0: shit. We've looked at why people blame Relisha's mother, Shamika, and whether focusing solely on Shamika is keeping us from changing the systems meant to protect kids like Relisha.
1: To, To figure out how we could prevent a child like Relisha from going missing really requires us to go back in time to the experience that their parents had growing up and their grandparents.
4: I would say... That every system in place that could or should have protected Relisha Rudd
3: essentially failed her.
0: On this episode, the last episode of the season, was Relisha's disappearance preventable? And what has DC done to keep other children from falling through the cracks?
1: (laughs) And I'm going to lead us in prayer. Father, right now, we come before you asking yes you love for Lord, peace Lord. to be still in this city. We're asking Lord, right now.
0: One of the last pre-pandemic reporting trips I did was an anniversary vigil for Relisha. It was March 1st, 2020, exactly six years after Relisha was last seen. It was cloudy but warm, like D.C. was about to skip the spring and head straight into summer.
3: Relisha, if you hear us, we want you to know that we will never, ever stop searching for you.
0: A couple dozen people gathered across the street from the Days Inn on New York Ave, one of the last places Relisha was seen. I spotted Relisha's grandmother, Melissa Young, pretty quickly. She was standing near a fence, toward the edge of the group. There were lots of other news reporters there to cover the anniversary, but no one was talking to Melissa yet.
1: Painful. A lot of memories. Six years so.
0: Wow. Wow. Melissa was really emotional and started crying once we started speaking. She was Relisha's only relative there.
1: I appreciate what everybody's done. I mean, though nobody else in my family say they appreciate it, I'm one of the ones that will say I appreciate it. I'm very thankful. So, you know, I couldn't have, couldn't have got this far, couldn't have kept her name out without nobody out here.
0: Including police officers and press, this was a small crowd. People didn't gather just to remember Relisha. They were also there to give out an updated missing persons poster to drivers, pedestrians, and nearby businesses. Like I've said before, people haven't forgotten her. They recognized Relisha's case as soon as they saw the flyers.
1: You know her uh-huh, we, me and my
0: cousin was talking about because I live right behind the prison. I said, that's most what they over
1: there doing. Yes, ma'am, this is her um, right. anniversary month. Right, right. And they National Children Missing and Exploited. They've done an age progression on her now. Uh-huh. And she disappeared out of this.
0: Melissa hotel. wasn't pleased with the enhanced photo, which tried to show how Relisha might look at the age of 14.
1: I just don't like the picture they got on it. It don't, it don't resemble, to me, it don't resemble her at all. Not what I think she would look like.
0: This event is held every year. And every year, the old wounds open up again, and the old questions do too. How did this happen?
2: And obviously, you know, this is difficult. There are these different agencies that have to somehow figure out how to communicate, you have HIPAA stuff, you have, you know, young children. I mean, so obviously there are barriers to, to sharing records and communicating. Um, none of this is easy. But again, You heard this voice before. Some
0: of this is Patrick Madden, a former WAMU also, reporter who covered Relish's disappearance and one of the first people I ever interviewed for this podcast. And I wanted to come back to that conversation just for a minute because we circled around this question.
2: And also, I mean, was anyone actually held accountable for what happened? I mean, it doesn't appear to be um, because the report concludes that the government couldn't have prevented this tragedy. So
0: He's talking about the D.C. government's report released in September 2014, six months after Relisha went missing. And it has a massive contradiction written right into it. The review team, quote, did not find evidence that these tragic events were preventable, unquote. But then it offers 15 findings. For example, the lack of background checks at D.C. General or religious many absences from school. And for every finding, there are recommendations for how the city can improve. I know terrible things can happen to people, even when there are guardrails to protect them. But to say Relisha's disappearance was unpreventable almost sounds like the city is saying it was inevitable, as though nothing could have been done to keep her safe. And these findings, they feel like admissions. Patrick Madden and I looked at every finding in the report, even the ones with so many redactions you can barely tell what they say. Number eight is super redacted. The review found limited interventions to address the redacted allegations between redacted and redacted, and their alleged redacted.
2: Right. I mean, there there is no way to know what that means.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that you've heard seven episodes of this podcast, you could probably write the report yourself. The school didn't report religious absences quickly enough. No one enforced the fraternization policy at the shelter. There was a complicated family dynamic, and the institutions responsible for Relisha weren't communicating well.
2: This is like the response to a lawsuit, right? This mm-hmm. is, okay, these are all the reasons why it's not our fault. That's what this report is basically saying. The, the other issues this report doesn't address any of the conditions that led up to the disappearance. You know, mm-hmm. how, how did the fam? you know, how did Relisha Rudd get into that situation to begin with? And it seems like if you don't do that, then you're just, you know... Who's to say that there aren't other situations happening right now across this city?
0: But the report was, and still is, a useful jumping off point. In 2014, what problems did the district see and try to fix?
4: For more than a decade, it served as a home for families who had no place else to go. Today, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser closed the door at D.C. General for the very final time. The
0: city closed D.C. General on October 31st, 2018. And just after she literally locked the doors to the shelter with a long metal chain, Mayor Bowser made a reference to Relisha.
1: We, as a city,
0: have said uh, we don't want to lose another child. Uh, we want families who are experiencing emergencies to have a safe place to land uh, so that they
1: can take care of employment, take care of her health, take care of training.
0: But this was four years after the report was published. It took four years for the city to close a dysfunctional shelter in a disused former hospital with far too many families packed inside and serious issues with staff discipline. Four years. After D.C. General closed, families who would have gone there were placed in hotels. Meanwhile, new, smaller shelters were built, one in each of D.C.'s eight wards. The last one opened in February 2021.  —
1: — Yeah. — That way, you know, we don't just sit yeah. As we walk, do you mind,
0: like, kind of Producer Patrick Fort and I went to visit one called The Triumph in the Washington Highlands neighborhood, the same neighborhood where Alicia lived with her family before they got evicted in 2012. We got a tour from one of the people who works there.
1: Um, — We have a basketball court with a hoop, and then we have our play area with a little jungle gym. Um, And then we have a little playhouse for our smaller kids that have a little smaller sliding board. Yeah, it's very cute. It's very cute. Thank you. It's important for kids to be able to be kids.
0: It's wildly different from D.C. General. There, families were crowded. Here, they have space. There, there was a fight for a playground. Here, there's been a playground from the very beginning. That's the case at all eight of the new shelters. (laughs)
1: Each all study room, where families <laughs> can come study, do
0: homework. There's art on every wall, and there are spaces to study and meet inside the shelter. Places to play. It's easy to see down the hallways. Something I later learn is important for security. If you build clear sight lines into the shelter, you don't need such a heavy security presence. The goal was to get rid of the feeling of being policed while you're in a shelter.
3: Say your name and your title, and I like sure. being able to just, like... Yeah, and I'm, or you can tell me if the muffle of the mask is a problem, because it... I don't...
0: At the Triumph, I sat down with Laura Zeilinger, the head of D.C.'s Department of Human Services, which is responsible for D.C.'s shelter system.
3: ...a starting place. So my job is to bust those barriers that get in the way of people realizing those hopes and dreams. Laura became the head
0: of DHS in January of 2015. She was appointed by Mayor Bowser, who had beaten former mayor Vincent Gray. Coincidentally, the campaign for mayor took place at the same time as the Relisha Rudd story was breaking. The primary election, which decides everything in this Democrat-dominated city, took place the same day that Khalil Tatum's body was found, April 1st. It doesn't seem like the Relisha Rudd story had an effect on Bowser's victory, but When Bowser took office, she pledged to end chronic homelessness in the district. That is, she promised to house people like Antonio and Shamika who have experienced homelessness for longer than a year.
3: And she chose Laura Zeilinger to lead the charge. We have to have shelter, and it's okay to invest in shelter, um, but we need to do it in a way that people aren't staying here for years, that they can come into a safe place where they feel welcomed and that they can also feel supported to move to a place of permanency that is their own. The
0: Triumph feels like a really nice college dorm. It has 206 beds in rooms of various sizes. No kitchens in the rooms. Families come down to the multipurpose room to eat. During the pandemic, meals have been served grab-and-go to try to prevent the spread of coronavirus. About 50 kids were staying there when I visited. D.C. General had about 600 children living there at its peak. Laura
3: says a small shelter has huge advantages. There is something in the size that creates a sense of follow-up where there's there's the opportunity for informal conversations, for feeling seen and known and heard and just, how are you? <laughs> how are you today? How are your kids doing right now? What's going on? Um, I saw in, from the school that your child missed a couple of days of school this week. What's going on? We, I didn't realize that. Or do you need help with getting to the doctor or whatever? What's happening there? And it's a different—so it allows us to be a different kind of advocate and a different kind of support for people and build trust. As she was
0: saying this, I thought about Relisha's school and how they didn't realize something was wrong for so many days. I also thought about Khalil Tatum, who, with his criminal record— should never have been employed at D.C. General and should have never been allowed to get so close to Relisha's family.
3: So one of the things that was our recommendation that was in the Relisha report that changed certainly immediately, but, has, but we have carried forward into every single contract since, is there are a whole series of background checks that are required for every single staff person. We also do training and require training on um, boundaries and um, sort of things that make it really clear that there's a no to that support our no fraternization policy.
0: Fraternization. I struggle with that word, too. That took, like, five takes. Anyhow, Laura's talking about providers and contractors, and without getting too deep into the weeds, yes, There are still layers of bureaucracy behind every shelter in the district. That matters because, in Relish's case, there were no clear lines of responsibility for her well-being. There was nobody in city government in charge of navigating the system for her. Different institutions involved in her life weren't communicating. The school social worker wasn't talking to the shelter, and no one in the shelter helped Shamika and Antonio find the child care they needed so they wouldn't have to rely on someone like Khalil Tatum. Zeiliner says this has changed, and that in spite of privacy laws, different layers of the bureaucracy are communicating better. But the system is still set up for a parent to be the person ultimately in charge, which is probably fine in many cases. But what if that parent isn't capable of performing that duty, of pulling together all the support and care that a child needs in order to thrive in difficult circumstances? Shamika wasn't such a bad parent that the city wanted to take her children away and put them in foster care. But they didn't give her the support she needed, either. I once interviewed someone who had gotten out of the shelter system and found housing. She told me that you have to have drive and not take no for an answer. Put your big girl hat on, she said. Go get it. But what about people who are just not capable of navigating the system, who don't instinctively have that hustle? They're at the system's mercy. After the break, what is the city doing to keep people out of the shelter system in the first place?
4: I'm Jenny Gathright. I work at WAMU and DCist, the same people that brought you Through the Cracks. I cover policing, jail and prison conditions, and the court system. I know that since you are checking out Through the Cracks, these are important issues to you, and you think about them critically. You can check out my reporting on these important local issues at DCist.com. I'm Jenny Gathright. I'm a reporter at WAMU, the people that brought you through the cracks. I cover policing, jail and prison conditions, and the court system. Since you're here, I know you think about these issues with the same critical lens I do in my work. Listen live at WAMU.org to stay up to date with the latest news, including my reporting.
0: This is it, the last episode. I can't believe that after years of work, our first season of Through the Cracks is ending. But don't worry, I'm already figuring out what season two will be. However, we won't be able to fully dedicate ourselves to this ongoing project without your help. Investigative podcasts like this one take a ton of work, and listeners like you make that work possible through voluntary contributions— If you're ready to support the investigative reporting that powers this podcast, give at wamu.org slash support through the cracks. And thank you so much for your generous support of this work. Over the time I've been working on this podcast, I've gotten to know Relish's family pretty well, except for Shamika, who said she'd talk to me but never did. I got to know others who deeply cared about Relisha, too. And along the way, I've talked about this story with a lot of people. Friends, colleagues, acquaintances, strangers. And they tend to fall into two groups. Many people just blame the family, Shamika in particular. After all, how could a family lose track of one of their children for over two weeks? But when I talk to professionals, people who work in social services... I get a much more nuanced
1: reaction to this story. I think that we, as a society, tend to blame individuals for being homeless, for not having a high-paying job, for not being able to provide food every day for their children.
0: Judith Sandalo is the director of the Children's Law Center, an organization that advocates for child welfare in D.C. In the last episode... She described how experiencing trauma changes a child's ability to attach to a parent and even affects their cognitive development. I keep thinking about one thing Judith told me, what a couple experts told me, actually, because it gets at the root of the way they think about homelessness and poverty and systems meant to protect children like Relisha.
1: I think blaming individuals takes the blame off of us as a community um, and makes it feel as if there's, there's no choice, right? Like, to say that nobody was at fault for Relisha going missing misses that the entire community is at fault. N- not that each of us individually could have saved Relisha, but that as a collective group, we could insist that our city have a child welfare system that gives parents support.
0: Judith says that homelessness isn't the only problem for families who can't afford the rent.
1: Children who are homeless are living in in deep poverty, so they are often not getting enough to eat. Their parents are focused on finding work and may have less time for them, may have to leave them alone. There may be health problems that are caused by stress. So there's a whole range of issues other than just homelessness. I will say once a family becomes homeless, it's much harder to solve the other problems. We know how to solve most of these problems. We just need to have the political will to do it.
0: I heard something similar from Beth Mellon Harrison, the attorney with Legal Aid, who walked me through Shamika's eviction records at the beginning of this season.
4: (laughs) There is so much more that um, D.C. could do to protect tenants and address these issues. You know, it's an uphill battle because of the power dynamics and the economic dynamics.
0: Because of the pandemic, evictions have been on pause, but that's not going to last forever. When I talked to Beth, she was already worried about the coming flood of eviction proceedings she would need to tackle. Families who would need her help in order to keep their housing. And Beth says that the people who likely will get evicted and end up unhoused, they follow a trend
4: The whole eviction system is an example, certainly, of systemic racism and other isms being reflected in what we do. And overall, it is that eviction happens to a group of people who are powerless in general in the system and are marginalized, and that has to do with, you know, all kinds of patterns of discrimination and inequality going back generations.
0: One thing we haven't talked about is DC is expensive. The rent is just too damn high for a lot of families. It's one of the drivers of homelessness. Most renters in D.C. spend more than half their income on housing. On top of that, there are fewer and fewer apartments big enough for families. Developers convert row homes to one-bedroom apartments because they're the most profitable. The D.C. government has been funding the construction of affordable units, but many of these are also too small for families. To be fair, before the pandemic, in spite of the high cost of housing, D.C. was making progress in reducing homelessness. Shorter stays in shelters, a rapid rehousing program which fast-tracks people into subsidized apartments, they've helped. But also, anecdotally, we've heard from several sources that some families in poverty simply left the city. So D.C. possibly could have prevented Relisha from going missing, but not with the system that was in place at the time. And now, are the city's efforts to improve shelters and prevent homelessness enough? Are they enough to prevent another kid ending up in the same situation as Relisha all these years later? Well, I'd love to have a definitive answer, but it's too soon to tell.
3: You want to do something real quick now or you want to wait? I can wait. Have you all started over there? Not
0: yet, not yet. A few weeks ago, I went to another anniversary event, the seventh anniversary vigil for Relisha. Same location, across the street from the Days Inn where she was last seen. There's a lot of traffic, as usual, and it was cold out. I instantly regretted not bringing gloves once I set up my microphone. Between the cold and the coronavirus, there weren't a lot of people out.
3: We're still waiting for um, a few of the commanders to get here. Okay. And once they get here, we're going to start. Whoever's here, whoever's not here.
0: That's Henderson Long. He runs DC's Missing Voice, an advocacy organization he founded after his niece went missing about 20 years ago.
2: I know
1: you knew it. You came last time. Right, right. This is my.
0: Uh... Henderson's wearing a shirt with Relisha's photo emblazoned on the front. It's purple, her favorite color. He's the one who's organizing these events for Relisha. And I wanted to hear his reflections on what had happened. Like a lot of social workers I've been talking to, he put Relisha into a larger context.
3: When you look at the uh, Relisha Rudd's family, mm-hmm. you look at the you know amount of opportunity that they had, you know, the grandmother, Relisha Rudd's grandmother, you can imagine what chance Relisha Rudd's mother had. Yeah. You look at some of the triggers that should have triggered um, um, an alert to go out sooner for her. Did, that, that didn't happen. And we still really haven't really addressed it yeah. and corrected it. Um, and it just so many people failed Alicia Rudd yeah. on all levels.
0: The event was brief. And as it wound down, I realized this year, nobody from Alicia's family was there. But I wasn't surprised. They've been going through a lot. ¶¶ Shamika is working and her remaining kids are in foster care. Two of them with one foster family. The other is with another. Antonio and Shamika are no longer together. He's working too. He's a cook in Prince George's County and he's fighting for custody of their two sons. Melissa has had a tough year. She's lost her beloved father and a cousin to COVID. And her partner was killed toward the end of 2020. I've reached out to Ashley to see how she's doing, but she hasn't responded yet. I've been thinking a lot about Relisha as this season of the podcast comes to a close. Even more than I usually do. I never set out to find her, but there's still a part of me that wanted to be able to say that we found her. To say, here she is, in school with lots of friends and hobbies and hopes and fears and dreams— an answer to what happened to her. I can't lie and say that's not a fantasy I had when I started this podcast, that someone somewhere would have information. But deep down, I also thought it would turn out just like it has, with lots of complex questions left unanswered and still no sign of Relisha Rudd. Cracks is a production of WAMU and PRX. This podcast was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and also by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Patrick Fort is our producer, Ruth Tam is our digital editor, and Ponce Rutsch is our senior producer. Our editor is Curtis Fox. Mike Kidd mixed this episode. Osei Hill designed our logo. Mona oversees all the content we make here at WAMU. You can find out more about the show, look at photos of Relisha, and read transcripts of our episodes at wamu.org the cracks You can also sign up for email updates. That way, you'll be the first to hear about future seasons of the show. This podcast would not be possible without the generosity of listeners like you. To support the investigative reporting that goes into Through the Cracks, give at wamu.org slash supportthroughthecracks. And finally, a special thank you to every single person who made this season possible. Stephanie Quo, Julia Karen, Daisy Rosario, Phyllis Kim, Morgan Givens, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and the entire Project Catapult cohort. An additional thanks to Martin Ostermull, Rachel Sedone and Rachel Curzius. Thank you to Paige Osborne, Rupert Allman, and the entire 1A team. Thank you to L. Kelly for the FOIA advice, and Ron Nixon and the entire Ida B. Wells Society for investigative reporting. A special thank you to all of our family, friends, and colleagues who listened and offered advice. We also spoke to a lot of people who you didn't hear from people who have experienced housing instability or assist people navigating homelessness and poverty. We could not have done this without you. This podcast is dedicated to black girls everywhere. You matter. I'm John Glenn Hill. Thanks for listening. hey this season of through the cracks might be over, but the podcast isn't. If you want to be the first to hear about new episodes or our next season, sign up for email updates at Wamu.org/ through the cracks. See you soon.